Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Ballad to Talk About. It is Saturday the 11th of March 2023 and joining me as always is my co-host Sam. Sam, it's been a relatively cold week both where I'm recording here in Singapore but also in the UK. Although once again I suspect the temperatures we're both referring to are a little bit different isn't it? Yes, I think they probably are. I don't. I can't imagine you've been quite as cold as we've been here, but who knows? Yes, it really is a bit different, and uh, I have to say, it is. I had to pinch myself seeing some of the pictures from my old school when back in the UK that it is March, right? I mean, half term is is just it's just amazing to think that there will be snow this late. Yes, but we've been we've been plowing through. Well, something for you to look forward to is the Oscars, isn't it, Sam? Which is the highlight of the social calendar, of of the entertainment calendar, I should say. Yes, I am very much looking forward to seeing what happens on um, on Monday morning, Sunday night, depending where you are. But uh, there's a lot of very close categories this year. But the big question, I think, Chern, is do you think Angela Bassett is going to do the thing? Well, for listeners' full discretion, Sam and I did. Sam did raise that he might raise this on the podcast, and I and I told Sam that I know who Angela Bassett is because I do quite like the TV show Nine One One, but I have absolutely no idea what the thing is. So I suppose you know we are two years apart. <laughs> well, the good thing is is that I am a bit addicted to Twitter, as I'm sure Sam is as well. So. Twitter will probably tell me is what I will say. And if, if it does happen, I'll look at it then. But moving back to more political and current affairs topic, I thought that as last Wednesday was International Women's Day, and to kick off this podcast, I thought, Sam, we could have a quick chat about a discussion we had a few weeks ago on Messenger. And it was something in which I thought was a very good question that I thought of at the time. And something that we can spend a little bit of time discussing, which was, and the question that I posed to you was, Sam, could you name any countries where a woman has succeeded another woman in political office? It is a very good question. Um, and we we did a bit of digging at the time, I remember, and the one you put to us was about Jenny Shipley um, being succeeded by Helen Clark in New Zealand in 1999. And then when I went away and looked at a complete list of all women, female office holders throughout the world in history, I could not find a single other occasion where a head of government has been succeeded by another female head of government, with one exception, which I think you pointed out with um, Bangladesh. But the crux of that being that in between, there were two acting prime ministers. So it depends whether you want to count that or not. And then there were two occasions of head of state. One was um, Elizabeth II being succeeded by Sandra Mason as head of state of Barbados. And then Mary Robinson being succeeded by another Mary McAleese as the Irish president in 1997. But um, those are the only occasions. Yeah, and just to give listeners a bit of context, the Bangladesh uh, idea was because in the 90s, um, due to political turmoil and tension, and the fear of corruption. The idea was that in between when a government term, uh, when an election is called and when the new government is sworn in, is that you have an interim government in place so that state resources cannot be funneled towards a particular candidate or political party. Um, so actually, if you take out the, act, the acting prime ministers who rule between that time, you have Begum Khalida Zia, 
who were succeeded by Sheikh Hasina, who in turn was succeeded by Begum Khalidazir. And there's been a rivalry in Bangladesh. I'm reading about it. It's called the, the Two Begums. And they're both, um, in one case, the daughter of Bangladesh independence hero, and the other, a wife of a president, who has had this historical, after coming together to take down the dictatorship in Bangladesh, they had a massive falling out and political rivalries and um, cleavage in Bangladesh have been between these two women and their political forces since mm. the 90s. So I thought it's really interesting that um, it's been a 30-year feud and it shows no sign of ending, really. <laughs> I um, Funnily enough, I also had a look, just out of curiosity when I was looking into this, as to whether the same thing has happened in like US governorships, for example, because um, that's just one thing we talk about quite frequently. And I actually found that there were two examples of incumbent um, female governors in the US succeeding um, female governors before them. So one was Michelle Luan Grisham succeeded Susanna Martinez in New Mexico, and Kate Brown was succeeded by Tina Kotek just this year as Oregon governor as well. So perhaps these numbers will begin to tick up slowly uh, as the years go on. But Chen, why don't you tell the listeners why we asked this question? Because I don't think we'll then be using that as part of our statistics anymore. Actually, just to correct that point, um, that's not entirely true, though, because there has been more than one occasion in which a woman has succeeded another woman in the state of Arizona, actually, um, because we had Jane D. Hull, who was succeeded by Janet Napolitano, who was, who was when she was appointed the United States Homeland Security Secretary, was succeeded by uh, Jan Bureau. So we had three women in a row succeeded as governor um, in as as governors of Arizona, and you had another one because in 2023 we had, of course, the newly elected governor of Arizona, which is, uh, which is Katie Hobbs. So Arizona has unique because they managed not only to do two, but they managed to do three in a row. Sam, oh, that's a great stat. Yeah. Well, the reason why we're going back to your original question was why we are talking about this is the fact that this conversation came about because you we were having a chat about Kate Forbes. Because Kate Forbes, if she were to become leader of the SNP and consequently First Minister of Scotland, she of course would be succeeding uh, Nicola Sturgeon uh, as First Minister. And uh, so this would be the first in a UK context where you will see a female First Minister succeed, being succeeded by another female First Minister uh, which did not happen at the UK level when both Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May, and Liz Trust resigned. So that's where the context of this conversation came up. But Sam, I'm sure you and I will agree that that the chances of that happening is seeming a little bit more remote than when we had this conversation, isn't it? Yes, and I'm sure that's something we'll be uh, unpacking in a few weeks' time when we get the results from that SNP leadership election. But uh, anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Yes, um, this week will be for those who did not recognize the opening song, which is Hope, which is entitled called Hope, which was actually Estonia's last Eurovision entry in 2022. Um, we'll be looking. If at anybody did recognize this song, please, please get in contact with us because I will personally send you a congratulations. <laughs> um, it's quite good a song, to be fair. Um, and of course, this is the week where and Eurovision came to my mind because Sam. It's the week, of course, which UK's Eurovision entry was released as well, which you and I both discussed as well. But anyway, enough about Eurovision. We'll be looking at Estonia's election, which saw 
the very likely return of incumbent Prime Minister Kaya Callas in what, Sam, would you classify that as a landslide? Probably, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's the most seats and most votes ever won by an Estonian political party. So I guess in Estonia's terms, absolutely. But before we do that, um, we wanted to wrap up an election that did take place when we had our little two-week break in February. Um, And it was kind of a toss-up we had between whether we talk about Cyprus presidential election, and if you want uh, results of that Cyprus presidential election, you can go to our Twitter page at ballot underscore talk and scroll down to find a thread of the results. But we decided to focus instead on election results in the largest country in Africa. And Sam, they are about to have a new head of state, isn't it? Yes, they are indeed. And and before we unpack Nigeria, it is worth saying that the follow the results we are going to discuss are currently subject to legal challenges with quite widespread allegations of voter fraud, intimidation and vote buying. So we will be discussing our analysis within that framework. But nonetheless, given that it is um, Africa's largest by population democratic exercise, we thought it was worth unpacking on this podcast as well. But President Mohamedou Buhari was term limited. So his successor will now be former two-term governor of Lagos, um, Bola Tinubu, who is from the same party, the APC, who won this election with 37.6% of the vote and more than 25% of the vote in 29 states, which is important for their electoral system. His main challenger was former vice president and six-time presidential candidate Atiku Ababakar from the PDP, who got 29.9% of the vote. And the other candidate who we'll be talking about is Peter Obi of the Labour Party, who is the former governor of Anambra State. He came third with 26.1% of the vote. But I think it's fair to say in that the eyes of the international media that he was seen as probably the main challenger um, to Bola Tinubu in terms of who was potentially going to become um, the president of Nigeria. And Nigeria does have a modified two round presidential system where to be elected in the first round, a candidate must receive not only a plurality of the national vote, but as I said, over 25% of the vote in at least two thirds of the state and the federal capital territory. And Nigeria has never gone to a second round. um, And it was suggested that this year could have potentially been the first time it did that. But nonetheless, Bola Tinubu was victorious in that first round. So Chern, given all that context, were you surprised? I would say, okay, I think my reaction to these results was a little bit surprised, but at the same time, not so. I think there was a lot of hype built around Peter Obi, but it seems that the system in Nigeria, and I think what is what really, to me, despite the last couple of opinion polls, showed his main challenge was, was that he represented the Labour Party, which has not been one of Nigeria's two main political parties, from when Nigeria had was got its democracy back in 1999, um, the presidency has alternated between the PDP, which ruled Nigeria from 1999 to 2015, and then 2015 onwards has been the APC. And the APC, barring the Supreme Court throwing out these results, will continue to rule Nigeria. So between these two parties, they have a party machinery and a party, um, lots of party supporters and workers that are able to get out the vote be it through legitimate means or through vote buying, which, let's be honest, many of the news medias we have been reading 
did take place in Nigeria. And I think with Peter Obi not having a machinery of the party, nor being having the MPs, both at the House of Representatives and the Senate and the governors were able to back him, I think to me that really was the big problem he had in, a, in an environment where an election was potentially not as free and fair. And one of the big reasons is that, yes, there was a lot of enthusiasm, but turnout in this election was particularly low. So I find it astonishing that in, a con- in Africa's largest country, the winning candidate got 8.79 million votes with a registered, with only 26.7 out of a registered number of voters of 93 million voting for the candidate. In other words, we're looking at a case where less than one in 10 registered voters voted for the presidency. It is absolutely astonishing to me. And in that kind of low turnout environment, that really favours the establishment parties. And I think that is something you and I talked about that will be the mm. key factor in explaining whether Peter Obi can be the outsider that wins the presidency. Mm. I mean, at the same time, there is an element of this which is a bit unconventional because Mohamedou Buhari, the incumbent um, president, the outgoing president, he had an absolutely abysmal approval rating going into this election. And yes, he wasn't a candidate. But do you not think it's strange that the candidate of that same party won handsomely in that context? Because usually, um, yes, it's a presidential system, so it's very personalised. But with an approval rating of that level and people being vocal critics of the the record of that government, it's interesting, isn't it, that the... Um, that the candidate of that party was completely able to um, run irrespective of that record. I agree. But I think that could also explain why he only got such a low percentage of the vote. He got only 36.61% of the vote. And he only won, he only carried 12 states, which is actually the same as the PDP candidate, and the same as Peter Obi did. They all got 12, they all won 12 states. So I think there is evidence in this result which do show the fragmentation of the vote and people's dissatisfaction. But don't forget, with so little proportion of the electorate having their votes cast and counted, it is more likely to suggest that it is party supporters who are voting rather than the hardcore party supporters rather than just the floating media voters who would, in an ordinary democratic election system, decide the outcome, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a, a completely fair point. And I think it's worth saying as well that Bola Tanubu had an easier path to victory than the other candidates. One, because the APC has quite a commanding control of governorships, not only having 21 out of 36 govern- incumbent governors, but four of the top five states by population are ruled by APC governors, suggesting they have quite a far reach. He also had an all-Muslim ticket this time, which is contrary to the gentleman's agreement that party tickets are meant to be balanced by religion. But that was very favourable in the Muslim North, which meant that he had a double power base because he's former governor of Lagos, so has a southern base of support. But as having an all-Muslim ticket, the northern Muslim support was hugely influential here as well, um, which I think made his his path to victory slightly easier than the others. And the big thing underlying all of this election, which we're going to unpack in a second, 
is that the opposition was fundamentally split between the PDP, the establishment party, and Peter Elby, who was a PDP defection. Um, and I think that's what made Bola Tanubu's path to victory even easier than it was given the already ingrained um, advantages that the APC had going into this election. Well, actually, it's, it's even more dramatic than that. Is that not only is Abu Bakr and Peter Obi, you had the fourth place candidate, Rabiu Kwaso, also himself was a former PDP member. And he also won one state, which is the state of Kano, his home state as well. So you the vote was split between three candidates who all got a substantial portion of the vote. And I think, so if you're a disillusioned voter, and there is a lot in Nigeria to be disillusioned about, you have an unemployment rate of over 33%, which suggests that one in three Nigerians are not working, Sam. That's an astonishing statistic. You had an electric tide of economic hardship with record high inflation, insecurities and kidnappings were taking place even on election day itself. If you were a candidate that were dissatisfied with the current incumbent, you had no signaling factor, Sam, particularly when you have, you think of the insurgent Labour Party and the more establishment opposition party, there was not a credible signaling factor for this kind of voters, but where to park your votes, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and you're right to bring up that fourth candidate as well, because when you have the vote split that many ways, especially in the electoral system we have in Nigeria, where you not just have to get a plurality of the vote, but you have to have a geographic spread of your vote as well. It makes that 25% threshold, which seems low, for an election that usually has just two mainstream candidates. But it does make that threshold quite difficult to obtain, especially in some low populous states, which have a very ingrained either religious or ethnic lean towards one candidate or the other. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Well, and I think I think for listeners, I think provide some helpful context is Essentially, this is a first-past-the-post election, isn't it? Uh, of a state-based first-past-the-post election. And 25% really, with a split vote, it's not that hard a hurdle to overcome, to be honest. And why Nigeria has this is that Nigeria fundamentally, and this could be best seen in a presidential election which elected Goodluck Jonathan in 2011, is split between the Muslim North and the Christian South. And depending on whether you, you are Muslim, you will tend to do well in the Muslim North. And if you are Christian, you do well in the Christian South. And the voting is incredibly polarized according to the regions. I mean, let's just take Bola Tinib, uh, Peter Obi is a good example, actually. In his home state of Anambra State, he won 95.2% of the vote. And in, he actually did very well in the Southern states as well. And I'll talk about why in a minute. So in Igbo State, which is again in the southern, which is in southern Niger, southeast Nigeria, he got ninety three point nine percent of the vote, and on in contrast, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, he got zero point two percent in Jigawa State, which was won by Bola Tinubu, and in Zamrafa State, he got zero point three three percent of the vote. So it's ideally this, and it, I think it really shows Sam that kind of polarization along ethnic lines that not only characterizes the election in Nigeria, but throughout the wider region and continent, isn't it? 
Yeah, and you've got this two-pronged thing in Nigeria because you've got the religious cleavage, but you've also got the ethnic tribal cleavage as well, um, which candidates across the spectrum in this election played on heavily, including um, Bola Tanubu, whose entire campaign seemed to be based on the fact that it was the time for a Yoruba person to take the presidency, and Peter Elby, who was trying to become um, the first Igbo um president of Nigeria. So you have those two threads running through this entire campaign. And I think this is a good time, Chen, to talk about Peter Elby, because yes, Bola Tanubu was the winner of this election, but the huge story was the candidacy of Peter Elby. So why do you think Peter Elby was able to break through so much? And what fueled his, his rise and, and his relatively respectable performance as a third party candidate in a predominantly two-party system. Well, let's not forget that I, 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 if I look, if you look at Nigeria's demographic statistics, it is a youthful population, as many countries in Africa are. And the two main challenges for the presidency was a 76-year-old and a 70-year-old. Uh, and the 70-year-old is not exactly a spring chicken, let's be honest. He has had rumours of health problems, and he's succeeding a president who has spent quite a lot of time out of the country on medical leave. And you've had, against that backdrop, a, the APC controlling the presidency for eight years. Before that was a period of PDP rule. And then you had suddenly a 61-year-old, so an even more spring chicken by the two standards of the day, representing a new political party and really embodying the change that, um, that a lot of voters and with the grievances I just listed out earlier, with insecurity, unemployment, and economic in and economic hardship, it really creates the ingredients for a change candidate to come through. So I think that that's why Peter will be caught on. And I think crucially in Nigeria, unlike Bola Tunubu and Atiku Akubaka, he has not, despite being governor for eight years, been tainted with corruption, which I think was a big appeal in a country like Nigeria. What do you think, Sam? No, I think I think you're bang on with those things as well. And I think the religious element played a big role here because Bola Tanubu was criticised for having an all-Muslim ticket and there was a big Christian revolt to that. And one of the cruxes of Peter Elby's campaign was that he campaigned hard with organised Christian religion. I mean, he attended some huge um, national conferences of major Catholic and Christian organisations in Nigeria and was trying to really capitalise on that resentment of Tanubu's ticket. And um, as I said at the start, there was that unspoken rule that you should religiously balance your ticket and Bola Tanubu, um, for political expediency, opted not to do that. And it was clearly very successful because it paid off in the north of Nigeria. But Peter Obi, I think, was able to capitalise on that as well. Well, that'd be interestingly, is that the, um, whilst there was a successful strategy for the APC, it wasn't a successful strategy for the PDP because uh, until they ruled 2015, the unspoken rule in the PDP is that given that they control the presidency, which is when we, are, uh, when we elect a Christian candidate, the next candidate will be a Muslim candidate and it will alternate vice versa. Now, if Atiku Abu Bakr is the last candidate in 2019, it will indicate that the next candidate will be a Christian. So it was probably the Christian's turn. And not only that, the PDP decided to reinvent themselves by 
realizing that with Mohamedou Buhari not being on the ticket, that this is a chance to, instead of always being on his Christian strongholds, which tended to do better, try and do better in the Muslim North, which is why potentially it was more attracted to the possibility of nominating Atiku Abu Bakr once again, given they saw in 2015 that that could defeat a Christian-based candidate in the South. And But the problem is, is that that threw open, I think, the door to Peter Obi because, like you said, of his successful campaign strategy and feeding onto this idea that, particularly in recent years, that even though the southern provinces are or the oil-rich provinces of Nigeria, you had a situation where, Sam, the oil-rich provinces, you had people not having access to electricity. So it's really taking the strongholds or with such a long PDP governance for granted. And I think Peter Obi was able to successfully tap in there and do very well in the southern states of Cross mm. Rivers, um, Emu, Anima, which is, of course, where he was previously governor at. And he won all these states, Sam, with more than uh, with more than 75% of the vote. So that's really astonishing. Mm. Yes, the, the mix and the political cunningness of Bola Tinebu did well, but I think the PDP mistook, missed that here. And given the context of how the southerners feel towards the PDP, that's what caused its poor performance this time around. And also, it's worth saying that the PDP primary was the reason there were so many other candidates breaking away from the PDP in the aftermath of that, because um, the, the the contentious nature of um, their candidate selection process um, was what splintered the party in the first place. So I think I think you're very right to point that out. But Chen, what is next for Nigeria? Because as we mentioned at the top. Um, they are challenging these results through the courts and we're awaiting that kind of decision. And today's um, today was meant to be the day that they were holding states elections and governor elections, and those have been postponed as a result of these court challenges. So what is next for Nigeria and um, and the future of these political parties? Well, I think that's a million-dollar question. Uh, there's lots of reports of... Um, a lot of Peter Obi supporters being heartbroken. And I think given some of the shenanigans that took place on election day, I am not surprised really. Um, I think what they probably realized is that change doesn't happen overnight, but Peter Obi has certainly caught on to the wave. Four years is a long time in political terms, but they suddenly have to be quote as a former Australian prime minister, maintain the rage. And I think even in an elect, and that's a challenge for Bola Tinubu, is that he's taking over a fundamentally divided country. There is a lot that he needs to do to put it all back together. And uh, and his task is certainly a mammoth one. So I think it does, for, for many of Peter Obi supporters, they will be disappointed, but potentially they have to build change from the ground up. I think what we have seen in this election is that the political infrastructure of the governors is very important and the lower level political office. Yes, the presidency is the prize, but I think in a country like Nigeria, you have to build up from the ground up. And it was hard for potentially a new party, a new organization to take it over. But now they have the opportunity to do so over the next couple of years with the governorship, for example, to really build that. I mean, heading into this election, Sam, the Labour Party had only one House of Representatives seat and no seats in the Senate. Now, there were 35 seats in the House and seven senators. Now, there is nowhere near the biggest party, but at least there's a bit more of a base to build 
and to build this momentum for change to really fundamentally redraw Nigeria's political landscape in the months and years to come. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, and I think in terms of what's next, we can't really be sure, as you said, it's the big question. But what can be said is that Peter Obi and the Labour Party has energised uh, youth in Nigeria and built a campaign that got 25% of the votes in the presidential election from relative nothing. Um, it did not have uh, significant party apparatus. It did not have governorships. It did not have the widespread long-term appeal of the other political parties. So if that, if if the movement was able to build that level of campaign, I think should the willpower be there, this could be replicated in lower tier elections as you said across states and in a presidential election that will take place in four years time because we have a situation where Bola Tanubu, as you said, is taking over a divided country. He's also taking over a, a fundamentally damaged economy um, which led to a lot of the widespread discontent we saw released in this election. So there's a lot to play for in Nigeria's politics. And um, I think it'll be fascinating to watch what happens over the next four years. And one more point, Sam. I think if you were Peter Obi or Obedience, and I think they'll still call themselves Obedience over the next couple of years, they have to play the political game in Nigeria very well. Because you and I both had the same stats, Sam, on problems at polling stations and the percentage of them which were opened an hour after elections were polls were supposed to open, Sam. And I think it does give an indication of some of the dirty tricks involved, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the stats you're talking about is that in the southeast, just 10% of polling stations were open for accreditation and voting an hour after polls were officially meant to open. So with these kind of um, political activities, it does make it very difficult um, for these political parties to break through. But potentially, given how widespread the exposure of those problems has been, it's something that begins to resolve itself ahead of the next election. So welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. And so we'll be moving away from Nigeria to be talking about a parliamentary election that took place last weekend, which took place in Estonia, which is an open party list system which with 101 seats in its parliament and therefore needing 51 seats for a majority, the big winner of this is the party, the incumbent Prime Minister, Kaya Kallas, whose Reform Party got 37 seats, an increase of three and 31.2% of the vote, which is the best ever performance for the Reform Party. Coming in second place was the Estonian Conservative Party, who got 17 seats down two with 16% of the poll, slightly underperforming the opinion polls, slightly. The big loser is by far the Centre Party, one of Caius's former coalition partners, who fell into third place with 16 seats down 10, with 15.3% of the vote. The Estonia 200, which is a liberal political party, uh, entered the parliament with 14 seats with 13% of the vote. And the Social Democrats got nine seats down one with 9% of the vote. And the centre-right Fatherland Party, or Isamar Party, got eight seats down four with 8% of the vote. So, Sam, let's start off with, um, once again, asking that question we always ask ourselves at the start of any analysis of parliamentary election results, which is your reaction to these set of results, Sam? 
I mean, my reaction is that it's a big win for Kaya Callas, especially after what has been quite a turbulent term for her and her party, because... Yes, they won the election back in 2019 by topping the polls, but they struggled to form a government. And it wasn't until midterm that Kaya Callas actually became prime minister because of a scandal that hit Yuri Ratas, the leader of the centre party and then prime minister. So it's been a turbulent ride for Kaya Callas, but this has been quite a resounding victory for her, getting the most votes and most seats ever seen in an Estonian parliamentary election since the 1990s. So... A huge result for her, um, and I guess that underlies my big reaction to it, because am I particularly surprised? Not really, um, because Kaya Callas's approval ratings were quite high. She's received a lot of domestic and international plaudits for her role in the reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we will likely be seeing her remain as Prime Minister, which I think, if you'd have had to place a bet on this election i think of anything you would have probably placed a bet on that um and here we are having having seen that happen last weekend yeah i think kaya Kalas, you hit a nail on the head was a big driver of her party's victory i mean the best indication is that she secured the most number of personal votes because this is an open party list system so you can pick the candidates of who to vote for. She secured 31,102, which is a record for a single candidate since Estonia was uh, became an independent country after the fall of the Soviet Union. And I think it's I think that's really an indication of also an endorsement, would you not agree, Sam, of her policies, particularly her policies, and there was some doubt about it, of Estonia's hardline stance towards Ukraine, isn't it? Yeah, and to be honest, that was the driving force of this entire campaign because it was what the Conservative Party tried to drive a wedge between them and the Reform Party. And I'm sure we'll come on in a second to talk about the Centre Party as well, who also played a role in this in this argument. But I think the big thing is that Kaya Kallas' personal popularity was very high. She had nearly a 20% lead over Yuri Ratas, which has grown throughout the first few months of 2023. And you talk about the Ukraine policy. I mean, you Estonia is spending more than 1% of GDP in military assistance to Ukraine, which in terms of contribution relative to an economy size is the highest in the world. So it was a very hard line stance on the Ukraine invasion, but clearly, clearly paid off. Yes. And the thing I find fascinating about Sam is Estonia really uses internet as the means of voting, isn't it? Um, more than half of votes uh, was cast using e-voting. And it's quite a dramatic result in terms of if you compare the e-voting to the paper voting. So I'll give you an example where you break down the number of a uh, percentage of uh, parties vote, how many percent voted by the internet. And the reform party, 68% of reform voters voted using this method compared to just 30% of centre voters and 28% of EKRE or the Estonia Conservative Party's voters. So it's a huge disparity. And the EKR's low percentage could probably be explained by its leader declaring uh, Martin Harm that leaders that he does not trust the e-voting results and demanding a recount, which sure followers of US politics would sound quite familiar mm. with that strategy based on the 2020 presidential I think election. The, um, 
court has thrown out that appeal, I think. It ha- they have. And the dramatic thing about Estonia election night is that um, if you are following it, is that they count all the precinct votes first and then count the internet votes came right at the end. And Estonia has no exit polls. So with 391 out of 405 precincts reporting their paper votes, we saw the EKRE had 24.5% of the vote and the Reform Party having 20% and the Centre Party having 20%. And suddenly the internet votes came and bang, the Reform Party had got a surge into the lead and we saw the results that we are. So it's really a big switch of rule between how people voted by paper and how people voted by the internet, I think was really interesting. And I think also speaks to the differences in the demographics of people who voted for these parties because the Reform Party that does well amongst old, uh, younger voters and certainly more wealthier voters, whereas the Conservative Party, I suspect, did quite well among uh, more poorer voters and uh, Russian voters, isn't it? Yeah, and let, let's talk about the Conservative Party briefly because at one point in this electoral campaign, they were seen as the main pretenders to the throne and there was a risk that whilst Kaya Kallis' Reform Party was pretty much consistently projected to top the polls, that you might have a situation where the Conservative Party are better positioned to put together a government. And yet the Conservative Party did seem to underperform expectations and fall away slightly throughout the campaign. So what do you think is the potential explanation for that? I think it's all to do with how, um, with two things, is first of all, differential turnout. Now, one thing I was reading about Seb is that um, genuinely, um, if you look at the level of political engagement, Russian voters in Estonia have a lower level of political engagement than Estonian voters. So therefore, you are already relying on a subsegment, particularly your voter base, to raising more concerns about the impact of the Ukraine war as a response to the prime minister. If you're relying on Russian voters to fill the gap of Estonian voters who be attracted to the hardline sense of the prime minister, you're relying on a lower salient voter base, which I think is the first problem that they had. Then you had the candidate itself, who clearly I did not think resonated with the majority of Estonians itself. And there is a taboo with vote, with teaming up with the EKRE, which we saw uh, the reaction the Centre Party got in the last election to teaming up with the EKRE to, to lock out Kaya Kallas out of the government in 2019. So I think they are, naturally, they are a party which I think has a very, has a high floor but a low ceiling. And you're now relying on the subsegment of a population which has a lower political salience. So I think these two factors, particularly as in over recent months, he's suddenly ramped up his rhetoric to try and chase after those sen- those Russian voters who might be disillusioned with the centre party stance, I think really hurt him in the grand scheme of the electorate that turned out. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's also worth pointing out that they did um, make their ability to capture other voters more difficult as well by not only their stance on um, Ukraine, but also we had the emergence of the Prigozhin scandal, which was linking the Conservatives to Russian paramilitary organisations and accusing them of running a 2019 disinformation campaign in Estonia, which is very difficult news to deal with in a context where the government and the main political party is running on a very pro-Ukraine, anti-Russian 
platform, which I think completely limits your ability to appeal to the same voters that they're appealing to. But that being said, though, this is an election, would you not agree, Sam, where the issues was largely the Ukraine war, wasn't it? Um, and I think, do you think that that was the sole reason why reform managed to increase its vote share and its seat count, or were there other factors at play? I mean, I think it's probably the main reason why they were able to increase their vote and seat count, because the sub-reason is the popularity of Kaya Kallas, but I think the popularity of Kaya Kallas stems from her response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I think in this election, all roads do lead back to, to Ukraine and Estonia's response, because clearly a majority of the Estonian population are in approval of the actions of the government, and I think we saw that uh, last Sunday as well. Well... The, the task now ahead for her is to form a government. And we, we, we did the math, Sam, and there really isn't, unlike in 2019, unless you see all the parties break promises to really form a government without Kaya Kallas's reform party. And she did state that the reform was looking at several options. But the option that she's decided to go with first is to with the Liberal E200 and the Social Democrats. Despite the fact that her current government, which includes the the Isamar and Social Democrats has a majority in Parliament. So why does she opt to, ex to change the current government makeup rather than simply continuing the coalition, which has the same number of parties in it, three, in post-2023? I mean, I think the thing to state about this incumbent coalition, which is the Social Democrats and Isamar, is I think a lot of it was a, an arrangement of convenience to try and build a government after the second collapse of government that Estonia saw within the last political term. Um, because I don't think that the reform Social Democrats and Isamar are natural bedfellows. And what happened in this election is that E200 had a good had a good night, they entered Parliament for the first time, and I think they're much more natural allies of reform because they stem from the same sort of liberal reformist renew europe background um, which i think makes them more natural allies so if you then assume that reform are probably going to want to talk to e200 you've got to find a third party and i think the social democrats are closer in many ways on current policy um, than ismar to the reform party so I think they're probably then the natural people you talk to. But the benefit for Kaya Kallas, as you said, is there are options because we've not even talked about her engaging with the centre party. Um, and yet that option remains on the table. And then you see that even within a three party government, you've got the options of potentially going to Isamar, Social Democrats or E200 and building some sort of arrangement between those parties. But I did think from the beginning that reform E200 and Social Democrats was the most likely outcome for seeing a lot of policy similarities because um, whilst Kaya Callas and the Reform Party are centre-right by definition, I think they've been trying to market themselves as much more centrist and liberal and aligning themselves with E200 and Social Democrats feeds further into that feeling. Yeah, and just an example that there are some policy similarities on the issue of education, for example, where between E200 and the Social Democrats, because they both propose um, policies of united schools where native Estonian and Russian-speaking students would study together. 
And Rescue that is what, and that's what broke apart the government between the Centre Party and Reform back in 2020 in, as well. Interesting, interesting thing as well. And whereas Isamar was more about protecting the Estonian language higher education, I think the other big difference of why Social Democrats over Isamar is the issue of Ukrainian refugees. Because Kayakal has been very clear, they will continue to accept Ukrainian refugees, and that's something that Isamar and, unsurprisingly, the Estonian Conservative People's Party was not willing to accept. So I suspect that that was also a big reason why she opted to go for the Social Democrats. She did also talk about sustainability as well, which is something that's more naturally at home with centre-centre-left policy than I would suspect centre-right policy. So all these would suggest that she's opted for the more logical outcome or the first choice option, but we're not saying that that is a path that is completely close to, uh, to Kaya Callas. There are definitely other options for her to pursue. And speaking of other options, one other option is, of course, she could opt for the Centre Party. But the Centre Party has suffered a calamitous election result with a big loss of seats and a big fall in their vote. So what happened to the Centre Party, Sam, and where did its voters go? I mean, I think the main thing that happened to the Centre Party is that on the big election issue of the day, which was Ukraine policy, the Centre Party were completely crowded out because there are traditionally... Um, soft party on Russia. Um, they have they have gained a lot of their support from ethnic Russians within um, Estonia. But in this election, they opted not to really engage with the Ukraine issue and try to talk more about um, cost of living, housing, etc. More of the run of the mill domestic political issues. And I think in this election campaign, they didn't really manage to get any of that to stick because the contest, the headline contest was between reform and the conservatives on what you do with Ukraine and how you respond to Russia. And in that debate, the centre party were being completely crowded out. And I think it's also worth saying that as you talked about with the Conservatives, the ethnic Russian population is already a small number of people. And yes, the Centre Party had a great night on Russian bordering northeastern regions, especially Idviru, which has the highest percentage of um, ethnic Russians in it. But even in then, the 15% of the vote went to the Estonian United Left Party, which has in the past been accused of being a Kremlin mouthpiece. So even some ethnic Russians were opting to vote for more hardline pro-Russian parties than the soft parties like the Centre Party in this in this case. And a Kantar poll ahead of the election said that 35% of Russian speakers in Estonia were undecided on whether to vote at all. So in this election in particular, relying on that Russian minority was just not really going to get you anywhere. And even if the Centre Party was successful in appealing to that um, base, it was the Conservative Party who had the biggest argument on the issue of the day. Interesting to notice is Idviru County, because that county is in constituency number seven. And you did talk about one of the other parties calling 14.9% vote. But did you look at who the independent was and how he got 15 point? An independent in that constituency got 15.5% of the vote, which is the name called Mikhail uh, Staunuhin who is a former Centre Party politician himself, now independent, and he's a very popular figure there. So he was also, and he was expelled from the Centre Party because in September 2022, he called the Kaya's government, quote, Nazis and fascists, 
over their policy of removing and relocating Soviet-era tanks as a war memorial, which I think was a news item at the time. So clearly in this region, there was a backlash on center parties' policies of shifting, trying to keep with the times of where Estonian society had moved to. In its, in its traditional strongholds, it was punished for that. And you talk about how it was punished, Sam. It's vote half in this constituency for 50.7% to 25.8%. And that 25% fall, you had 30% going to candidates with a harder pro-Russian stance. Um, and so that is just on do the you, vote. Do you therefore agree with the idea that they were just completely crowded out because they did not have an appealing message on the issue of the day? I totally agree with that. But I also... I also like to point out to your counter poll on uncertainty of who to vote for. Well, the way the Estonian system works is that it is a party list system at district level, but the number of seats assigned to this district does depend on turnout. And the number of seats for that were assigned to constituency number seven fell from five to three seats because of the turnout, because of this constituency's lower than um, lo lo relatively lower turnout compared to 2019, and the centre party itself lost seats from three to from three to only one. So I think really all the problems we talked about, the lack of motivation by natural Russian-speaking voters, possibly alienated or disillusioned or neglected, simply not bothering to turn out, or them even if they do turn out to vote for a different candidate, all came home to roost if you just look at constituency number seven. That's fascinating. Um, and I think it just illustrates the point that I think this proportion of ethnic Russians in this election really found it difficult to engage with the election full stop because of the because of the tone of the debate around the Russian invasion of Ukraine and where they stood within that. And I find it interesting as well, if you compare it to when we talked about Latvia, which is another one of the Baltic countries, we saw a similar thing happen, didn't we, with Harmony, where the, the Russian, the ethnic Russian population in Latvia really struggled to engage um, with the election full stop. And in there, we saw the complete disappearance of the party itself. But I do think the difference is that the party system in Estonia seems to be much more stable and stronger than the party system in Latvia. So I think that is a slight difference between that, and that could explain how Centre was able to maintain his head above the fray, because you said they were squeezed out, not only squeezed out on the Russian side, but clearly the other half, despite you know expelling politicians like uh, that had that had made controversial comments, he they, for example, were clearly not trusted by the native Estonian population because they lost seats in every single other constituency apart from Tallinn itself. So clearly they were not they were not trusted by their own set of voters. And even though they were trying to say, hey, we are trying to keep up with the times, they were not trusted by the native Estonian people. So really, it really backs up your point, Sam, of them not having they're lo losing their base and being squeezed on both sides. Yeah, I mean fascinating discussion about Estonia and their election and we will be keeping you up to date on our social media as and when we hear whether Kaya Kalas is successful in forming that first preference government she's talking with as of now. But Chern, as we often talk about, do you think there's any takeaways across these two sets of elections we've talked about today? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Both countries came out of uh, relatively recent democracies. Estonia since the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s and Nigeria since the end of the 
military dictatorship from 1999. And in both elections, Sam, was the test of the country's democracies in many ways. You know, in, in Estonia was the threat of, you know, they feel the threat having an aggressive neighbor on his back door, you know, how literally invading another country and their, their freedoms and democracies being tested. Whereas Nigeria, the challenge is more internal, isn't it, in terms of its challenges to its democracy, in terms of and and the political establishment. And in both elections, we saw wins for the incumbent. The incumbent in the APC maintained the presidency and Kayaka is continuing as prime minister, but the method in which they achieve that is totally very different. It could be argued that the that in Nigeria there are a lot of underhanded, undemocratic ways in which it has managed to achieve another term, whereas Kaya Kallas has managed to do it by persuading the majority of her populace to vote for her. And it's interestingly that the conclusions for the elections as a result are divergent. Estonia is probably a more united country as a result from these elections. And we should say as well, as we did talk about the differences between the, the Conservative People's Party to, um, to the Social Democrats. But really, we're talking about small degrees of differences regarding the Ukraine war, it, the response to the, rush, to the war in Ukraine. Because EKRE, they are still broadly in favour. They oppose stronger national defences, for example, but to a lesser extent, obviously, in terms of more concern about the extent of support rather than questioning the support itself. Whereas in Nigeria, we are really seeing the country, you know, the narrative from the country is Nigeria as a less united country, not only religiously, ethnically, but tribally, but also now generationally. So I think it's interesting to see some of these takeaways. From, on the surface, two countries which have come out of democracy follow two totally different paths, isn't it, Sam? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting analysis. And the only other thing I was going to say was I think there's some interesting parallels to be drawn in terms of ethnic cleavages as well, because you see ethnic cleavages completely driving the Nigerian presidential election and have done since 1999. And then over in Estonia, what you've seen in this election really is that the minority ethnic group of Russian ethnics have not really engaged in this election at all because they've found it very difficult to side with parties and their support are splintered all over the place. Um, where you see, versus in Nigeria, where you really see um, ethnic cleavages coalesce around particular candidates and really drive that support forward. So it's interesting to see the different roles that ethnicity plays in politics around the world. Yes, indeed. And we like to always end on a good story. Well, let's talk about Rappler County, which is constituency number four for Kaya Callas. And I think that really shows you, once again, to round off our Estonian discussion, how well she did. Because... Uh, the number of seats that reform had increased from five to seven and increases vote from 38% to 40%, which is a huge achievement for, for the prime minister. And this is a, the best performing constituency for reform. It also happens to be the largest. So I think that is where um, she did best and she won the biggest constituency. And I think that shows you that, uh, that really in her home area, it is trusted and Sam, in contrast, in Nigeria, um, Bola Tinubu is a former governor of Lagos State. Do you know who won Lagos State? Not him. <laughs> it was Peter Obi. So I think contrasting there to a contrast set of results for the new leaders of both Estonia and Nigeria, isn't it? Personal results anyway. 
And on that note, that is it for the latest episode of Ballad to Talk About. And I do wonder if I can finish this in the less than one minute time I have. Do join us again next week when we will be previewing the New South Wales state election. And as always, we'll continue to keep you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at ballot underscore talk. And do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. You can also email any feedback or comments to ballot to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Chen Han. And until next time, with less than one minute left, we will speak to you soon. Well played, well played. Ha <laughs> ha!